In one of our hymns that we sometimes sing before the preaching, uh, the Spirit breathes upon the Word and brings the truth to light. And so as we come to hear the preaching of the Word, we depend upon the Spirit. And so let us pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would indeed bring the truth to light as we study it together. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, as we come before you this morning, we have no confidence in the flesh. In all our ways, we acknowledge you. You are the God of truth. You are the God who, by the Spirit, inspired men to write the truth in this book. You sent your Son, who is the truth, the way and the life. And his words we will hear this morning. We ask that you would write them on our hearts that you would cause us to pay close attention to them, to receive the truth and not reject the truth. This your spirit can do. We are dependent upon you to do these great works. And so we come pleading, we come knowing that your ear is open to the cry of your people. We come knowing that our voice is not merely bouncing off the ceiling of this building, but it reaches the very throne room of heaven where power is exercised over this whole universe. And so we come in confidence that you hear, that you will answer, that you will work your holy will. Oh, may it be for the good of each one gathered here this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew as we will hear again and study again these words of the Lord Jesus in this longest recorded sermon of his in our Bibles. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we have this Sermon on the Mountain, verses 1 or 3 actually through uh, 13, we had the Beatitudes, those blessed statements. Then we had, in a way, the mission of those who uh, display this character described in the Beatitudes. Their mission is to be salt and light in this wicked, sin-cursed generation that we also read of there in Philippians chapter 2. We are to be lights. We are to shine like lights in this wicked and perverse generation. Now we come in verse 17, and actually it's a long section. Jesus is going to deal with these people, these ones who are described by the Beatitudes, these ones who are his true disciples. What is our relationship to the law of God? How does the law relate to us? And in an introduction to this new section, we find in verses 17 through 20 that he is not canceling the law. Rather, he is fulfilling the law and the prophets. So follow with me in your Bibles as I read verse 17 through 20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, the jot, the yota, or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, or, and so teaches others, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great 
in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus here introduces this whole section. And as you, we go through, we'll see that he's dealing with the misconception, the misinterpretation, the misapplication of God's law, which was being carried on by the Pharisees and the scribes in his day. He's not changing the law, but he is correcting their misinterpretation of that law. Now, that hymn that I began to quote earlier the Spirit breathes upon the Word and brings the truth to light, goes on to say, precepts, commandments, and promises afford a sanctifying light. And you know, in many evangelical churches in our day, you might hear someone respond, well, uh, I'd rather have a sermon on promises, thank you. Uh, the sermon on precepts, well, not today. Well, wait a minute. Is the law then canceled? Do we toss out the precepts of the word of God and just have a book and we're going to toss out things we don't like and just keep the promises that we like? No, because we find in these verses that Jesus establishes, underscores, does not abolish or throw out, but rather all the more strengthens the law and the prophets because he fulfills them. And so in this section, we're going to be dealing with questions such as, is the law relevant today? What is the relationship of the law and the gospel? Sinclair Ferguson, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, quotes John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, as saying in a letter to a friend, ignorance of the design and nature of the law is at the bottom of most of our religious mistakes. Now, if that were true at the end of the 18th century, it's even more true here at the beginning of the 21st. Ignorance of the design and nature of the law is at the bottom of all or most of our religious mistakes. So we need to understand what is Jesus saying here in these verses? Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And as I meditated and pre prepared this message, uh, I wanted to really go through this whole introduction, but you know, so much here. Just this one sentence of verse 17 to unpack that is really a big task. And so that's as far as we're going to get this morning. And so uh, the best way that I could outline this is by my uh, method, my, well, I enjoy this method, I like this method, of interrogating the text. So we're going to ask some questions and then seek to answer them. Here are the four questions. What does Jesus mean by, do not think that I came? Oh. Take it, break it down little bit by little bit. Secondly, what does Jesus mean by the law or the prophets? And then thirdly, what does Jesus mean by destroy or abolish? And then lastly, what does Jesus mean by fulfill the law and the prophets? And of course, we have to add on to that 
what does this mean to you? Okay, and try to draw out some practical applications. Well, obviously, as those four main questions of interpreting the passage, the, the big one is, what does it mean Jesus came to fulfill these? And that will take up most of our time, but we need to begin at the beginning. What does Jesus mean by saying, do not think that I came, dot, dot, dot. Well, the, the verb here, do not think, the, the verb think could be translated suppose. Do not suppose. It's not just the ordinary word for think, but it's a word that is used especially of an opinion, which is contrary to fact. Uh, just a few examples. Those who were hired first in Jesus' parable, the parable of those laborers. They were hired and they were given a promise, this is what your wage is. It says in the end of this parable, they supposed, when it's time to pay out the wages, they supposed that they would receive more than those hired at the end of the day. They supposed, but they were wrong. It's a thinking, it's an opinion contrary to fact. Jesus' parents supposed that he was in the caravan. They thought, well, you know, we're all leaving Jerusalem. We're all heading back to Nazareth. Jesus has got to be with us. They supposed wrong. And that's the verb that Jesus uses here. Do not suppose. Do not make the mistake of thinking in this way, in other words. Okay? So we have a hint that Jesus is talking about something that is a wrong idea. And here Jesus goes on to say, do not think, do not suppose that I came, dot, dot, dot. Now let's just think about these words that I came. That implies that Jesus didn't just show up and kind of say, well, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do today. Uh, well, maybe I'll do this. Uh, maybe I'll do that. No, Jesus came he was sent with a purpose. Do not suppose that I came for what? And so he's talking about his messianic mission. Don't make a mistake about my messianic mission. And Jesus, when he uses this phraseology, I have come, dot, dot, dot. He's talking about his purpose. He uses this language, for example, in saying, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is my, my goal. This is my job. This is what I'm here to do. Not to save those who think they're righteous because they're not going to come to me. I came to call sinners who recognize, who acknowledge they're poor in spirit. I came to call them to repentance. For example, also, I did not come to be served, but to serve as the Son of Man who came to give his life a ransom for many. This is my purpose. This is my mission. I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. This is my mission. And so when Jesus says these words, do not suppose that I came dot, dot, dot for this purpose that you might think. That's a mistake. Now here, as we then tie up this first point then, what does Jesus mean when he says, do not think that I came? He's saying, I want to correct a misunderstanding of my mission. Don't make a mistake about it. It reminds me of a sign that I saw back in the town where I lived when we, I went to high school. There was a sign in a, a small parking area, and it said, don't even think of parking here. 
All right. Now, why would you put that sign up except that it looked like a good place to put your car? You wouldn't put that sign over a ditch or a hedge. It's going to be put in a likely place. Now, obviously, that was a place they didn't want a car. It would block other cars. There was some reason for it. But it might be supposed that it looked like a good place. Well, why would Jesus here say, do not suppose that I came, dot, 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 except for the reason that there were people supposing that very thing. Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. Now, why would they think that? Well, Jesus appears on the scene. This is more or less the beginning or close to the beginning of his ministry. And he's not taking the line of the scribes and the Pharisees. He didn't go to their school. He didn't graduate from rabbinical university of Jerusalem. He didn't go to the pharisaical school. And now he's teaching. And in his teaching, he's obviously going away that is not following the line of scribes and Pharisees. Does that mean if he's not like these respected religious leaders, does that mean he's going to throw out Moses? Does that mean he's going to trash the Bible that we have, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets? Is he going to do that? We see that's what the Pharisees are beginning to spread about him. This man doesn't follow uh, us. He's not with us. You, you should not listen to him. And so Jesus is then reassuring the multitude who are there with his disciples. Don't make this mistake. Now, do we need to hear this? Sadly, yes. There are many people who are making mistakes about Jesus' mission. And they're making mistakes about what he came to do, especially with the law and the prophets. That leads us to the next question. What does Jesus mean by the law or the prophets? And notice he says the law or the prophets. The phrase law and prophets would refer to the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. Just a couple illustrations of this. While you're in Matthew, you can turn back to chapter 22 and verse 40. Matthew 22, 40. Uh, Jesus is answering the question, which is the great commandment in the law? And I trust you have memorized those two. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God, Matthew 22, 37, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your, excuse me, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice verse 40. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. What is he saying? This is a summary of what God requires of you that you'll find from Genesis to Malachi. It's a summary of God's requirement, God's righteous law, discovered in the whole Old Testament. Luke, if you turn over a couple of books to Luke, in Luke chapter 16 and verse 16. Again, we find this language of a summary of the whole Old Testament or a uh, compendium, putting it all together. It's described in this way. Luke 16, 16.
where he now condemns the Pharisees who were lovers of money. He says, Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And since then, the gospel of the kingdom is preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the whole of the scriptures in Hebrew. It's been proclaimed up until John. Now the gospel, the good news is also proclaimed. And so this phrase Law and Prophets summarizes the Old Testament. Now, notice that Jesus again said the law or the prophets. Now, again, why does he use the, that conjunction, or? Well, you might say, well, law and the prophets, well, that's pretty vague, pretty general, pretty big. But now he makes it specific. The law or the prophets. You can narrow it down as much as you like. Nothing contained in either of them, in all of them, is going to be annulled or thrown out. All right, now, okay, law and prophets, old, old testament. It's pretty, pretty big. But if you notice in the context, and I think this is especially important in our day and age, Jesus zooms in on the law. Look at the following verses. Verse 18, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Verse 19, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others. Verse 20, your righteousness must surpass that of these experts in the law. Verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. The law, the Ten Commandments. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse, 20, verse 33, you have heard the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows. And so, on and on. Jesus is especially zooming in on the law. Now, at the fourth point, we'll come to deal with how he fulfills all of these. But especially I want you to note, Jesus is underscoring for us, the law of God is not canceled. We're not going to trash it. We're not going to throw it out. We're not going to reject it. We're not going to say it has no application to us, has no relationship to me in the 21st century. Quite the contrary, as we sang in our last hymn, has quite a bit to say to us, even in Christ and also those in the world. So nothing, no part of the law of God is to be rejected of the moral law, especially. Now, what does Jesus mean in the third place by destroy or abolish? I did not come, going back to Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to abolish, cancel, destroy. Some translations have it the law or the prophets. What does this verb mean? Well, translated variously, uh, destroy, annul, abolish, could be uh, translated, it's, it's the intensive form of the verb to unloose, to tear down. It's, it's often used in contrast to building up. This is tearing down. Don't think I came to tear down. Take bricks out of, so it's going to collapse. 
the law or the prophets. That is explicitly not the mission of Jesus Christ. Now, in other words, let me make this point here. Jesus is telling you, me, us, he's telling each one, the scripture cannot be broken. He says that to the Jews, in fact, to the Pharisees, in arguing with them about him claiming to be the Son of God. He called God his Father, making himself equal with God. And the Pharisees and the Jews were very upset with him. And so in answering them, he quotes from a psalm we read earlier, in fact, where he, and he says, in quoting that psalm, and the scripture cannot be broken. Quoting from a psalm. The scripture which you say, scribes and Pharisees, that is your guide and your light, and this is what you study, that cannot be broken. I hold fast to that. It is true. It is the settling of all controversies. The scripture cannot be broken. And so Jesus, when you read the Gospels, he speaks of marriage as being instituted between one man and one woman. Where does he quote? Genesis chapter 2. The very beginning of the Bible, Jesus is saying, this is true, this is uh, regulative of marriage. He speaks of Noah as an historical person. Noah, the, 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 the flood, that was real. Yes, Jesus believed it was real and taught it as real. He speaks of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses as historical individuals, real people. In other words, Jesus upholds as true the whole of that Old Testament. Not myths, not old wives' tales, not fairy tales, not fables, history. Jesus believed it, and so should you. And if it's not true, if we're going to throw out any part of our Bible, brethren, we might as well pack up and go home. Because we don't have anything to stand on. Jesus took it as true. And he is the yea and the amen. Now, in the fourth place, and here's the main part of the message. What does Jesus mean? Going back to Matthew 5, 17. Do not think, do not make the mistake, do not wrongly suppose that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And here if we take these two parts of the Bible, and then we take the law in its various parts, uh, we'll see that he does this in various ways. But what does he mean by this word fulfill? I did not come to abolish or destroy or to throw out or demolish. I came to fulfill. Now, this word does not mean he came to edit to correct as though the law was wrong. It does not mean he's going to uh, alter, uh, modify, change. What God said is still true. All right? But what he is going to do is fulfill, that means carry out, put into effect, bring to fruition those things which were stated in the Old Testament scriptures. And he does it in different ways. How does he fulfill prophecy? Well, I think we all have a clue there. He fulfills prophecy because he did what the prophets said would happen. 
And he had done to him what the prophets said would be done to Messiah. Just in this book of Matthew alone, there are 13 times in which it is stated, this or that happened, took place, so that the word of the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. And before you come to chapter 5, there are already five of them. Let's just go back to those first few chapters of Matthew. Matthew 1, 22. With regard to the birth of Jesus. When the angel told Joseph, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. We read verse 22 of chapter 1. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. It's fulfillment of prophecy. The prophets are being fulfilled. It's happening before their very eyes. Chapter 2, verse 17. Or chapter 2, verse 15, excuse me, first. 2.15, uh, the, they went to Egypt, and it says, and the, they were there, he was there until the death of Herod, and that was that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt did I call my son. Verse 17, then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, and that's with regard to the killing of the children in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. It was fulfilled. The prophet said it, and it happened. Chapter 2, verse 23. He came and resided in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Chapter 4, verse 14. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And the light has come to us as well. And so you see, again and again, throughout the book of Matthew especially, but throughout the New Testament, we find again and again this language, this took place, to fulfill what was spoken in the prophets. Just think also of what was spoken in Psalm 22. What do we read in Psalm 22, that messianic psalm, a psalm that David wrote, but foreshadowing, pointing forward to what was going to happen to Messiah. Verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Isaiah 53, which we considered at our Lord's Supper service a month ago. All we like sheep have gone astray. We had turned every one to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Fulfilled. Praise God it's fulfilled. All those things that the people of the Old Testament looked forward to. When is Messiah coming? We look back and say, praise God, he's come. 
and he fulfilled the prophecies of his coming. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? He was the coming one and he came and he accomplished his mission. And so he fulfilled what the prophet said because he did what they said or he had done to him in his sovereign will what the prophet said, even down to the dividing of his garments. It was fulfilled. The nailing, the piercing of his hands and his feet. But he also fulfills the prophets because the prophets were not only foretellers, they were also forth-tellers. And they were those uh, servants of God who came to Israel and Judah and pointed out their sin and rebellion against God's law. And Jesus, instead of being ob an object of their complaint, was one who would have been an example of keeping the laws we've seen in the previous hour. And so he fulfilled that part of the prophetic ministry by doing the law. And that leads us to the next thing then. How did Jesus fulfill the law? I did not come to abolish but to fulfill the law or, or and the prophets. How does Jesus fulfill the law? Well, we know that the law has three parts, and you can find this, by the way, in Exodus 20 and following. Uh, it roughly breaks down into moral law and civil law and ceremonial law. I may have those orders. I know uh, moral law is first, but I'm not sure exactly in my mind right at this moment of the other two what order. But they're there. You can follow it out in Exodus chapter 20 to the end. Now, how does Jesus fulfill the moral law? Jesus fulfilled the moral law by keeping every last commandment. I love to ask this question in an evangelistic situation, evangelistic Bible study or conversation that you pick up. And, and you can use this question. I don't have a patent on it. I just like to ask people, so do you know anybody? God's a holy God. God hates sin. He wants a perfect righteousness. Do you know anybody in the whole history of the world who kept all of God's commandments perfectly. And it doesn't take long. You know, they don't have to go into deep meditation. They come right back and say, yeah, well, no, I don't know anybody like that, including themselves. And then I say, I do. I know one who kept every commandment from his youth up perpetually and perfectly his whole life. <gasps> Now, if they have any biblical background at all, they say, oh, I get it. Jesus. If they don't have a clue about Jesus, they, their jaw drops and they say, who was that? It's Jesus. If you need a perfect righteousness and you do, where can you get it? In the Philippines, it used to be in, in the Metro Manila area. If you need car parts, you go to this street. And it's all the way across town. But if you need car parts, that's where you go. And, you know, if you need furniture, well, there's this street. And it's in Quezon City. It's not close. But there, there are certain places where all the stores on the street are these certain things. Well, if you need righteousness, I'll tell you what. There's only one shop in the whole universe. It's Jesus Christ who can give you perfect righteousness, the righteousness of God. And that's the gospel. Jesus gives you perfect 
righteousness. He made him who knew no sin. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the one who knew no sin, that's Jesus. God the Father made him to be sin on our behalf. That's on the cross. That we might become the righteousness of God. Perfect righteousness in him, in Christ alone. And so it is of vital importance that we know Jesus came and he did fulfill all the moral law. Because where else are you going to get a perfect righteousness? Only from Jesus Christ. But secondly, he also fulfills the judicial or civil law. How did he do that? I, I mean, don't we know that uh, we're not in Israel? We don't have to keep all of those. We're not ob ob abiding by the Jewish civil law. Well, that's right. But Jesus kept it in this way. He fulfilled it, is a better way of putting it, in this way. By making a new nation. Look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 43. And this is that parable of the vineyard. And the wicked vine dressers who wanted to keep the profits and not pay the vine vineyard owner. And after this parable where these wicked men even uh, kill his son, the son of the vi vineyard owner. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, he asks them like a wise teacher. All right, he wants to hear it from them. What? will he do to those vine growers they said to him verse 41 he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons jesus said to, to them did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected this became the chief cornerstone this came about from the lord and it is marvelous in our eyes therefore i say to you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Jews, and will be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. What nation is that under the heavens today? It's not the United States of America. It's not Israel in Palestine. It's no other political entity today. It's the church of the Lord Jesus, the people of God, the nation that brings forth the fruit, the true people of God, not the nation of Israel. And so Jesus, then this civil law of uh, governing that one nation in Palestine, Israel, Judah, that nation is no more. And so this civil law, Jesus fulfilled it by taking it out of the way, by creating a new nation. Of course, there are parts of the civil law that uh, have gen uh, general equity, are illustrations of the moral law, like uh, putting a parapet on your roof. If you're going to go up on the roof, you need to have a uh, protection so people don't fall off the edge. Maybe OSHA and um, uh, the building codes take their cue from this. General equity. So there are provisions that are of general equity, but they are related then to the moral law. Now we come to the third part of the law, the ceremonial law. How did Jesus fulfill that? He didn't abolish, that is, can it? How did he fulfill it? He fulfilled it by taking the shadows 
and the types and turning them into reality on substance. That's how he fulfilled these. What all you read in, you know, we're, we're going through in our Old Testament reading in the evening. We're in Numbers, I believe it is. And we've gone through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and a, a lot of those laws and a lot of them having to deal with sacrifices and the grain and the incense and the um, bulls and the goats. And why all this shedding of blood? And if you were a little Jewish boy or girl, and you had your favorite sheep or goat. And you had to bring it. And it was going to be sacrificed. Daddy, why? Because there's sin. And without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. This is what God has commanded that we do when we sin. Blood is shed. Why? Blood of a goat? Blood of a sheep, blood of a bull. I'm a person. How can sheepy replace me? Whether the Hebrew father would have known clearly enough to say, this sheepy is pointing to the Lamb of God who will come and take away the sins of the world. But that's the reality that we know today. And so those little children that had these lessons before their eyes, sin is a terrible thing. Sin causes death. Now, when the Lamb of God is nailed to the cross and pays for sin, we tell our children, that's how terrible sin is. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins will die. Whether on the altars of the Old Testament, that was just a shadow. That high altar of Golgotha, that was the real thing. And so we don't need to repeat this. Whether on bloodless altars or bloody altars, in any sense, any way, shape or form, because the ceremonial law is fulfilled. Jesus paid it all. Jesus gave the sacrifice once for all time, never to be repeated. And so the ceremonial law, yes, did he come to fulfill it? Not to abolish, but to fulfill? Yes. And he did it, especially on the cross of Calvary. And so looking back then at Matthew 5, 17, is this a true statement? Do not suppose, don't even begin to think, that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. Don't even go there. Don't even take a step, a tippy-toe in that direction. It's wrong. I came to fulfill, to uphold, to establish all of these. By having it happen, the, the prophets. By keeping the Ten Commandments perfectly. By setting up a new nation which has not those same laws, but not to abolish, but to fulfill them. And by fulfilling the types and shadows of the ceremonial law in that one perfect sacrifice. And so we come now to the last question. What does this mean to you? No, this is not just some antiquarian study and some uh, interesting ideas. This is very practical. 
Because it means to you that the law of God is still in effect. Before that, before I come to that, it means, first of all, before that, the word of God is true. Jesus didn't say, oh, well, you know, let's toss this one out. Let's toss that one out. Genesis to Malachi. And now in our age, Matthew to Revelation. We're not going to add to, we're not going to subtract from. We have the word of God. Jesus took as gospel, as truth, if you will, Genesis to Malachi. The New Testament was not yet written, written when he died and rose again and ascended on high. Oh yes, the reality of what happened that we read in the pages of our New Testament, that had happened, but it was still to be written. Now it's written. Your word is truth, is what Jesus prayed, John 17, 17. And so, do you believe it? Or do you cling to the science? You know, the science, today's the science is different from yesterday's the science. I don't think you have a sure foundation. I speak, by the way, as one who knows some science, as a, one with a chemical engineering degree, and I don't flash that or flaunt that, but it's just reality. I want you to know, you know, we people here at Trinity Baptist Church are not people with their heads in the mud. We're thinking individuals, and we believe this book, and we love this book, and we base our lives on this book. And you ought to as well. We have a solid foundation. What did we sing earlier? How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Hold fast to the scriptures. And secondly, the law of God is still in effect. And we're going to come to more of that in the coming weeks when we talk about not a stroke or a, a yoda, a, a stroke shall pass away from the law. We shall not annul the least of these commandments. We're going to talk more about that. But again, I mean, underscore, if you're looking for excuse for your sin by saying, well, that's Old Testament, that doesn't apply, that's law, we're, we're under grace, <laughs> you're in the wrong shop. Because we believe the Bible and Jesus, more important than we, Jesus came to uphold and fulfill the law. It's still in effect. And it's a guide to our feet. It's a light to our path. It shows us how to live pleasing to God. We thank God for his law. Like David, we can sing, oh, how I love your law. May that indeed be the attitude of each heart. But then... Thirdly, and lastly, in terms of what it means to us, make no mistake about Jesus' mission. There's so many ideas about why Jesus came. You know, he was a good man. Uh, and I swallowed that for a while when I was in high school. Oh, he was a good man. But you know, a good man claiming to be the son of God? It was Rabbi Duncan, I did a little research, it was Rabbi Duncan, I discovered, who first posed that question, is Jesus a lunatic, a liar, or is he Lord? If he claims to be the Son of God, he can't be a good man. He's a lunatic or a liar, or he is what he says. 
And he is. He came to fulfill the law by keeping it. He came into this world as God the Son by dying to take its penalty upon himself. He fulfilled that as well. Fulfilled the law's penalty in place of his people. And so, for each of you here this, this morning, Jesus Christ will fulfill the law in your case in one of two ways. Please hear me. Either he will fulfill the law for you by giving you a perfect righteousness, a righteousness which has no defect. In him was found no sin. He had done no violence. He is holy, harmless, undefiled. Perfect robe of righteousness. He kept the law for all who trust in him. All who come to him and like that public and that tax collector, God be merciful to me, the sinner. He gives a robe of righteousness. He also keeps that law, that law of condemnation. The soul that sins must die. And you break one law, and it's the same as breaking all, James tells us. And you know you've sinned. You should die. Well, how can I stand? Because there's one who took that penalty on himself. And because as son of God, he bore in his body our sins up to the tree. The sins of all his people for all time. And he was sufficient for the task. Were your sins there? If you turn from your sin and trust in that Savior, I can tell you, your sins were there. And you bear them no more. He came to fulfill the law. To fulfill its perfect standard. To fulfill its condemnation. This he did. We read in the end of Luke where Jesus met his disciples again. And he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He echoes what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And, listen, that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And that's what I'm proclaiming. You repent, that is you turn from your sin. You, what does it get you anyway? Sin makes you miserable. And you know it. What's the cause of all your problems? It's your sin. Or maybe somebody else's sin is a contributing factor too, but don't forget you're part of the problem. Your sin makes you miserable. Why keep up with it? What has it ever done for you? Turn away from it. Turn from sin. Repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name. Why his name? Because he fulfilled the law. In all ways. 
He's the Savior. You trust in Him. And you have forgiveness of sins. That would be one way He could fulfill the law for you. But there's another way. He could fulfill the law for you by condemning you for your rebellion. Ezekiel puts it this way, Ezekiel 18, 4, Behold, all so God says, Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as, of the, as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. Jesus will fulfill that as judge. Which would you rather? Turn and be saved? Or continue in your stubbornness, in your misery, and die in hell forever. Jesus came to fulfill as Savior. Oh, come to him. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your Son, our Savior. We thank you for all his work, which he accomplished, for the mission which he came to do, not to abolish, not to cancel the law and the prophets, but to fulfill in these various ways. And so we ask that you would write your word on our hearts, that you would indeed open hearts to receive him, that you would indeed open blind eyes to see him in his mercy and his grace in his truth and for your people that we would not in any way give in to the temptations set before us by false teachers to annul to cancel to neglect any part of your holy word but that we would be careful to follow the lamb wherever he leads we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.